You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. final episode of 2017, I want to look back at the year that was. Frontlines has become so much more than a podcast. In a lot of ways, it's a community of like-minded, hard-working people. Some of you are volunteer board members, and some of you are trail association employees. Others are trail builders, or maybe you're what I like to call that super volunteer or clicked-on mountain biker. I thought the best way to celebrate the last year was to bring on some past guests for our very first panel discussion. I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 31 of Frontlines. I'm joined by three guests right now. The first from North Vancouver, British Columbia is Christine Reed. She's the executive director for the North Shore Mountain Bike Association and past guest all the way back to episode two. Hi, Christine. Hey, Brent. How's it going? Good. And next we have from Fayetteville, Arkansas is Brandon Pack. He's the executive director of the Ozark Off-Road Cyclist and was my guest on episode 19. Hi, Brandon. Hey, Brent. And finally, joining us from Kelowna, British Columbia is Jay Darby president of the Mountain Bikers of the Central Okanagan and director on the BC Council of Imba Canada and guest from not only the very first episode, but also episode five and episode 17. Hey, Jay. Hey, hey. Glad to be back, man. Yeah. Thanks everyone for, for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm kind of excited to, to not only hear from each of you again, but also to, to kind of connect uh, the three of you together as well. I think, uh, uh, I think we've kind of got lots of different perspectives. You, they're fairly spread out in, in different regions. And I'm, I'm excited about uh, the conversation that we're going to have right now. So my very first question that I have is uh, lately I've been I've been trying to to get as much reading done as possible, and and it's helping me to kind of uh, think about future episodes. Uh, it's it's trying to get more books for the the Frontlines Book Club, and and right now I've been reading a book by Terry O'Reilly, and it's called This I Know, and and. Terry is the the host of a popular podcast called Under the Influence. It's produced by uh, the CBC here in Canada, and I'm not totally sure how popular his podcast is in the in the U.S. But uh, the book explores a, a, some some uh, lessons that he's kind of learned in the marketing world. And the first few chapters cover uh, what we often refer to as the elevator pitch. And so essentially you've got the time that it takes for you to go up one or two floors in an elevator to tell somebody what you're all about. And I want to ask each of you what your elevator pitch is for your organization. So what's the boiled down version of what you do? Would anybody like to go first? First of all, Terry O'Reilly, I am such a fan of his, um, you know, second to listening to the Frontlines podcast. Uh, Terry O'Reilly's Under the Influence podcasts are uh, just as easily digestible and really interesting um, and, and fun to listen to. Um, I'm also a big CBC nerd, so uh, being able to 
listen to him and see how some of uh, the marketing best practices really can relate to a nonprofit um, has, has been really, really cool and interesting um, takeaway. But my elevator pitch, if I can get to it, I've already gone up a few floors and uh, <laughs> ruined my time. Um, but the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, we've really spent a lot of time this past year and a half uh nailing down what our elevator pitch is. So um, the North Shore Mountain Bike Association is a volunteer-driven um, advocacy group. We advocate for mountain bike trails on the North Shore, and our focus is on trail building and bringing people out, um, developing trail stewards, bringing youth, um, people who live in the area or are traveling from other areas to come and see the trails, learn about how and why we build trails um, and the standards to which we build them. And that's what's really most important to us is, is creating this um, atmosphere and experience uh, out in the forest, whether it's trail building with the intention of then using those trails to ride your mountain bike on. We call it, we call it the trailhead speech actually. So, you know, you're, uh, you hit your local uh, trailhead and you're sitting there and you're gearing up and you, you know, see a new cyclist or maybe somebody that's, you know, new to the region and you engage them in some quick conversation. And, you know, what do you do with that time? What do you do with that couple, couple floors you have to travel? And so ours is very similar. And typically we start that conversation with our mission to advocate for, build, maintain, and preserve sustainable multi-use soft surface trails. And we do that across the Arkansas Ozarks. And I know we only have a couple floors here, but really very quickly we break it down. You know, the advocacy piece really is driven by volunteerism. As an organization, we will oversee 4,000 hours from the community back into our trails this year. And it's a great way to really engage those potential volunteers. You know, we do have a membership model. We are a chapter of EMBA, but at the same time, it's really the volunteer efforts and the volunteer energy that we spend with our marketing dollar and our conversations because we find that those will lead to new membership if we can get them out on the trails and show them what our organization is about. Awesome. And Jay? I call mine my get on the bus speech. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of what we see in the general public when we're out there doing stuff, we're a club that's fairly dynamic. We've got a a history of, of doing certain things well and not doing certain things quite as well. I mean, we struggle with advocacy versus community building and, and trail work versus trail legalization. And, you know, where do you focus to encourage people to be a part of the club and how I like to answer the questions I get more often than not, it's not me trying to convince somebody to be a part of the club. It's more like answering, why don't you guys do this? Or why are you guys doing this and not this is I say, well, you know, our club is like a big school bus and we've got a driver and we've got like a teacher on there and there's maybe a supervisor, you know, but unless people get on the bus, you know, we're going somewhere, but we're not full. We need more people and more ideas to kind of like figure out where this bus is going. And that when we get there, there's enough people to get off and participate in what we're doing. Um, so I, I call it my get on the bus speech. <laughs> and it's basically, you know, telling people that, that the club is a vehicle for them. It's not, it's not us doing something. It's, it's what do they want to do? What do they want us to help them do as a community? I feel like you just defined a marketing campaign for 2018, Jay. 
Awesome. The ideas are flowing already. This is great. So to, to kind of build on, on that, uh, episode 22 was with Brandon Gallagher Watson of the Minnesota off-road cyclists. And, and we discussed branding and, and marketing and, and understanding that. And, and a big point that Brandon had was what type of group, uh, defining what type of group you are. That's more important than a logo. Uh, that's more important than a, than a website. You, you need to kind of know who you are first before you can really kind of launch into that. And, and I think as well, having that identity uh, is also crucial for um, to ha- kind of have that as a fallback and, and, and to always kind of know who you are. So when you have to make decisions going forwards or you're trying to figure out where you need to take the, the organization, you have that kind of thing to fall back on. Um, and what you're defined as, you know, I've got the, the, the first few sentences or the first two sentences that I say on, on every episode of the the podcast, those two sentences have kind of helped me figure out, is this the right episode for my audience? Uh, is this what I need to do? And I've always kind of fallen back to that, but having that identity can be challenging to define. And so was it easy for you to identify your organization's uh, identity or did it take some time? Christine, do you want to maybe start us off? Yeah, I, a really great example of how we had to get very clear um, on what this was for us um, at the NSMBA uh, was our development of our youth program. So about three years ago, we were hearing from the community that they were really wanting and needing some more um, youth programming. And so we decided to play around with what this could look like and take on some new ideas. But what we started to find was that it could become very overwhelming. Do we start? Do we take kids out on bike rides? Do we have a fiver for them? Do we take them out on trail days? And we kind of felt like this would spread us too thin for an organization that is already led by volunteers. Adding one more thing to the plate could be really tricky um, and could end up pulling us in so many different directions. So we had to get very clear on who we were as an organization to start making those decisions. And what we came to realize, which is what we've always been, is we are an organization of trail builders, trail maintainers, and trail stewards. And that is the goal in developing our youth. Um, So we really use the trail stewardship piece to define how we wanted to create youth programming. So instead of taking kids out for group rides on on the trails that we maintain, why not bring them out onto the trails and work with them to work on the trails, see how much work goes into them, and really develop a sense of ownership um, in in contributing back to the community and and seeing what is possible and what lives right outside their backyard. So we found that defining ourselves as trail builders and maintainers really helped us to whittle down what was really important for us and um, develop the legacy because that's what youth programming is creating is developing your legacy of potentially the next um, digger is in the, this group of youth, um, the next trail steward, the next council member, you know, all of these, these youth are growing up and they're going to be taking on um, some big things in their lives. And 
developing this essence of trail stewardship and environmental sustainability is really important to us. And we think that mountain biking is maybe what attracts them, but being able to keep them around to understand the environment in which they're working in is really important. So yeah, we're trail builders, we're trail maintainers, um, and we're trail stewards. And that's really helped make those decisions when people are coming to us with, with new ideas. Now, Brandon, I know that the the Ozark off-road cyclists as well kind of identify themselves as as being uh, trail builders, trail maintainers, um, but that wasn't always the start of of the organization. I know you and I have kind of discussed how the, the organization was really a, a group of people who kind of got together and, and were riding. And so how did the, that group transition from just some people meeting up at a bike shop to to where you are today as, as kind of trail builders? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, looking back at our history, we, like probably a lot of advocacy groups for mountain biking specifically, started out a bike shop. And, you know, we identified the need to come together, you know, for advocacy. And from that, trail maintenance quickly became identified as an opportunity that we as an organization and we as a community could really have an impact on the trails. We'll start to organize together to keep the trails maintained. And within a couple of years, we adopted trail building. And since then, and this is in the late 90s, we're celebrating two decades as an organization this year. We really haven't wavered from that mission. Uh, we've been hand building trail across the Ozarks for 20 years. I think from a marketing side, what we've struggled with over that time up until recently, and I'm sure this is to this day to a lot of organizations, is the misconception of what it means to be a volunteer trail builder. And so a lot of our marketing, a lot of our initiatives are built around defining that. What is that? What does that mean? Is it, you know, is it a bunch of, is it a bunch of dudes in the woods? Is it, you know, what, what can it be? And we've really broken it down into what we feel is kind of the core of it. And we want to make sure that people recognize it as a fun, family-friendly experience. It's a, uh, it's the right thing to do. We want to establish ownership in our trails, obviously, as well as defining the impact and, and the, really the difference it means and the difference you can have as a volunteer or trail builder. And, you know, well, like what Christine said, that leave a legacy. We use that. We've kind of broke it down into three marketing campaigns or hashtags. Come play in the dirt is probably the biggest one that organization uses. We, we see that as a, kind of defines it as a, a fun, family-friendly opportunity to you know, we took we took the word work completely out of our vocabulary. We don't do work days. We don't do trail work days. It's all about opportunity. It's about a volunteer opportunity to make a difference in your community. We use build what you ride a lot. That's really that's uh, targeted towards that ownership, that it's the right thing to do. You as a trail user have the opportunity to give back to your community. And you can do that by building and maintaining trails with organizations like the Ozark Off-Road Cyclist. And last is that that leave a legacy, right? And we would never want to take away from other volunteer organizations and the impact that they have on the community. But to be honest with you, I have yet to find a volunteer impact someone can make that's as lasting as hand building or building trail with their local mountain bike organization. And, and we use this in our language, but you know, you get volunteers out there I mean, the stuff they're doing, the difference they're making is lasting, right? I and mean, we've all built trail that hopefully someday our children's children will ride someday. And we want, you know, we're really targeted on those three aspects in our marketing and getting that messaging out there. 
we just uh, finished a video. We shot a really high quality video. I'm sure uh, Brent can put that in the show notes, but I would love for everyone to see that as to we feel it really tells that story of what it means to come out and volunteer in your community and the difference it can make. I think it's really interesting how hashtags have really supported getting very clear on some of these things. Like we've started using more frequently, like I dig the shore. Um, And I think hashtags can really help to quickly tell that message, especially when they're reused over and over again and you start to see the community using them as well. So I think it's a really interesting point that you made around hashtags and how they can really help. Um, in both marketing, but also strategy of your organization. Yeah, I like I like the thought of the identity can influence the, those hashtags or how you market. But um, but that's an interesting concept to kind of think that even those hashtags could kind of define what your identity is, kind of the, the other way around. Mm-hmm. Jay, how has how has MTB Co uh, evolved over the years, and how has their identity changed? I think uh, MTB Co is kind of a little bit interesting in that our history uh, is a little bit mixed. We really formed as an organization around solving a problem in that there was a kind of like local informal dirt jump area that was torn down. Uh, It became an issue between the city and a neighborhood council or like a neighborhood group. And the MTB Co was just forming at that time. And so our first project like as an organization within six months, half a year roughly of being formed was building a bike park. And that's usually something that an organization doesn't do till it's, you know, in place, has an idea of who it is, has, you know, a governance structure and, you know, and a capital program and that kind of thing. And our, our first effort was it was a big capital project. And that kind of threw the original board of directors into the fire a bit and it didn't give us the organization kind of time to figure out what it was. It became, oh, they were the group that built the bike park. Um, and then from there, they went into doing informal trail days on, on, on a number of local, you know, non-legalized trail networks. So it, it kind of jumped a bunch of steps. We they, The club jumped, you know, what are we going to do? They jumped the idea of advocacy. They jumped the idea of, of you know, like, of legalizing the trail networks before doing work on them. And we kind of, when I came into it, the club had started to retract from some of those things, realizing that maybe it had, it had negatively impacted its ability to, to achieve some of its goals by some of, through some of its actions. Um, so, you know, when I came in the board at the time had decided to, we, we stopped doing trail days on informal networks or, or non-legalized trail networks. Uh, we took a couple years to divest ourselves of the bike park. So we were no longer a bike park maintenance organization. I mean, that was something we were legally responsible to do through our agreement with the cities. We had to maintain this bike park. So it took kind of a while for us to really find our, our way as an organization for the various board of director members over the time to kind of decide where we needed to be to achieve the actual goals of the club, which when it was formed were to legalize and have all the trail networks in our region formally recognized. Um, so that's kind of, I think we really like snaked around a little bit trying to, to find our way, which puts our image in the community is a, is a little bit different than some of the more, the clubs that are as established as we are, but have had a more defined path along the way. And that's almost, that's almost true for, 
mountain biking in general. I mean, mountain biking, I always think mountain biking has had a lot of chances at a, at a, a first impression. Um, you know, we had, uh, Lycra and, and neon and, and spandex and, you know, that was mountain biking. And then, and then we kind of had this rebirth of mountain biking that was rock and roll and sending it and that free ride movement. And, and so there's many people out who aren't mountain bikers who might have those images come to mind when they think about mountain biking. So, you know, that image or, uh, or, or who we are, our identity almost as mountain bikers, I think is, is evolving and, and we're trying to change it as well. So it's interesting to kind of hear that, that road from, from just an organization as well. Absolutely. Uh, Christine, you mentioned to me that uh, the two episodes you enjoyed were episode seven with Umbreen Tarek of Brown People Camping and, and episode 20 with Ziv Stamper from Israel. And what about those, those episodes stood out to you? I really enjoyed those two episodes a lot because they really put me in a place of considering how mountain biking plays a bigger role in the global universe. When you were talking with Zimv and in considering how mountain biking is bringing together two communities who wouldn't um, and have had a, a lot of history of being torn apart, how mountain biking has helped to get rid of that divide. Um, sometimes when you're working as a nonprofit and, um, you know, we're, we're getting into the nitty gritty of things and sometimes things can get really sticky and tricky. And I'm just like, why are we doing this? Like I, I, I could be a doctor. I could be, um, you know, curing cancer. I, I could be doing things that have a direct impact on people's lives. But episodes like that made me go, yeah, mountain biking is saving people's lives and it's giving them an opportunity to do something different and see if that is a way to create peace between nations and create peace between people. Um, and, and it was, yeah, it was very like heart impactful in, in, in uh, listening to that episode. And then um, the episode with Abreen um, from Brown People Camping. Uh, I've, I've followed her on, on Instagram for a while. And um, it was just really cool to also see the responsibility that as advocates we have in creating opportunities um, and being very open and welcoming to all different types of people. And how are we being responsible in allowing that? Um, you know, I look at our AGM and our town halls and I look out into the crowd of people who are really engaged and they are young, white, 20, late 20s, early 30s, something white men. <laughs> and um, I would like to see um, more faces out in that crowd. And, you know, I can't just state that and say, I would like to see that. I need to actually do something about it. And I need to develop relationships and I need to create opportunities. Um, and, and that the sport is very privileged, but with that privilege comes responsibility. Um, and, and having that in the back of your mind whenever we're developing something new, you know, especially when we were, so the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, we were developing a youth academy this year. So we have a trail academy, which we, tend to only um, tailor towards adults or young adults and teaching them about trail stewardship and some of our trail building best practices. 
So we thought um, and we were hearing from the community that having something like this specifically for youth and being able to work within the BC curriculum to adapt it, we could have something like this for youth specifically. And as we started considering what schools would be able to offer this type of programming or what schools we could work with, I remembered this episode with Aubreen and really set it out to the team to consider like how could cost or price be putting a disadvantage for other types of schools maybe in the downtown east side. You know North Vancouver has a lot of private schools and a lot of affluent students that live here and that probably are already using the trails so how can we reach out and be really active in a different type of community and how can we work with sponsorships or types of grants to be able to still offer this type of programming to, to other students. Uh, that episode with Aubreen has always really stuck with me anytime we're developing something new or we're considering our marketing. It's like, how are we being open? Um, and it, it might not be the right answer or I, I, you know, the way that we're doing things might not be the right way, but I feel like we're trying to take steps and it, it takes consciousness and understanding of, of, all of all of these nuances that can either... Um, dissuade people or really encourage other people to come out and ride bikes and give back to the trails. Jay, you asked a, a question which launched us into a, a slightly different format for the, the show, <laughs> and that was episode 17. And it's personally, it's, it is one of my, uh, my favorite episodes. Um, it's also was one of the the hardest ones to put together and it took definitely some more work than some of the other episodes but i think that's that's what you get when you uh when you put in you know a, a lot of uh a lot of editing time and and a lot of people were included in that episode and so that just takes takes time and so uh, the question that that you asked of trail associations was um how do we try to manage users on soft surface trails and over the over the a couple of months after you asked that question every guest that i interviewed for various episodes i asked that question too and and so my first question for for you jay is uh, were you able to take away actionable information from that discussion i think there i think it was the biggest benefit to me was the discussion that happened out of it. Like the idea that there was a lot of different ways to approach the subject itself, not just actionable items, but, but ways to look at the problem and ways to, to perhaps manage it using uh, non-traditional tools. I, I know one gentleman that was a guest on that episode had an example where their their head of trail director was taking photos every time he rode and posting them to social media of good and or bad conditions and be like hey you know here's what it looks like today you probably shouldn't be here i think that was kind of like that was the, in my mind that's the one that snuck or stuck in the best was was his example um and then just the conversation around how do you even frame the topic of of uh, you know, you, when should you ride? When shouldn't you ride? You ver when the uh, punishment versus shaming, or you know, just encouraging appropriate behavior. That idea around how do we, how do we just frame it so so it's palatable to to the general public for them to want to make appropriate riding decisions. 
So uh, kind of building off that, my, my next question is, is for everybody with that format in mind, um, you know, I wish I could, I could do almost every episode in that way. Cause I, I got so much, uh, gr- I had great conversations with everyone. There's a ton that went into th- those episodes that, that, uh, there's a lot of the conversations that actually didn't make it into the episode that were great. And I, I got to talk with people all over North America about the topic, which was really neat. It, it kind of opened my eyes to, to various issues that people deal with and, and different types of trail conditions and, and, uh, the environment that, you know, we're all not, we're all not in the same type of dirt and the same type of conditions. And, and I think that's really unique that each group is an expert in their location. And that was, that was really cool with that kind of format in mind. Are there other topics that, uh, that anyone would like to see kind of in that format? You know, what questions, uh, would you like to pose to the frontlines audience? First, I want to say this is, um, I, that episode with, uh, answering Jay Darby's question. I know there was definitely some diversity in how people go about, you know, advocating for appropriate trail use. We in our region are in a very unique position in the sense that one, we have very mild climates, right? It's we promote year round riding. We see that, you know, the Arkansas Ozarks and Northwest Arkansas really starts to separate from some of the other destinations. And I I will, I use that word because this region is quickly became coming recognized as a destination for mountain biking and because we have four mild seasons and because they're the weather is pretty conducive to riding your bike year round we've had to take an extra step now recognizing that for instance jay you want to come ride our trails and it's january and your boss is like well schedule your annual vacation now and so now jay's coming to ride his bike in september in northwest arkansas well, we want to make sure from a tourism aspect that there's some appropriate trails for you to ride regardless of conditions, meaning weather and the soil composition, very rocky, very churdy. A lot of the trail systems set up for a couple dudes to go out there. And if you're coming into town, you're really you're you're not going to do any damage to the trail system. Are we going to promote some big group ride if it's a little wet? Probably not. But at the same time, if a couple dudes are coming here from Canada to ride their bikes, we're going to identify some trail systems that are appropriate. We're calling those AWT or all weather trails and we're developing signage to include in our trail systems at the trailheads and actually on trail markers and trail names as you're riding the system that if you see this on the trail, then you know that as a community, we're saying thank you for coming here. Thank you for bringing your tourism dollar and staying with us and staying in our hotels and drinking our beer and hanging out and riding our trails. And go have a good time. We don't want your experience to be less. Now, obviously, there's still going to be some trails. A lot of the manufactured trails with cap dirt and different things we're going to ask you to stay off of. But there's a ton of contour riding in the Ozarks. It's just amazing year-round. And that starts to separate us from some of the other destinations across the U.S. That's a great idea. Yeah, that's that's a wicked alternative, to, especially to managing you know, visiting users who might not know the networks and know where to go. But at the same time, we had to also educate our own user groups because it's kind of like, be careful what you ask for. We got exactly what we asked for. We asked for ownership and we asked for our community to start ownership. And we started seeing this, our take ownership. And we started seeing all this public shamming going on on social media at different times when people are out riding in wet conditions. And again, there's 
probably a good, probably 50% of our trails, by all means, go ride. You're going to have a great time. You're not going to do any damage to the trails. Just please follow the signage and, and, and do what's appropriate. But it, at the same time, we also had to almost re-educate our own community that, you know, there is going to be times that even though it's a little wet and really you just kind of know um, our soil condition around here, if it's under an inch of rain, typically in 24 hours, most of the trails are going to be okay. But um, we just kind of monitor, monitor our rainfall as it pertains to hosting any kind of group rides. And I think every region's different. Like you said, Brent, we all kind of know what we're up against and we have to, uh, you know, establish appropriate language and appropriate ways to engage the community on, on what's right and wrong time to be out riding your bike or hiking or, or trail running. I mean, we're up as we're up against just as it's not just mountain bikers. I mean, from a user group, we're probably the a smaller segment than the actual foot traffic. And so it, you have to take a more multi-use approach when it comes to educating your trail users and, and make sure that you're including language in there that's consistent with if it's a trail that doesn't need to be hiked, then make sure that they're included in that language when you're when you're putting that out there. Um, as far as like if there was something that there's always going to be these large public debates, and from a trail maintenance aspect, what we get in it's become a, it's a real recent issue because we're in the middle of fall and there's a bunch of leaf off, and some of the trail systems that don't get as much use maybe have the leaf packs a little heavier, and it's really around to blow or not to blow the trails. And as far as the leaf packs concerned, and so that there's been a lot of dialogue recently within our own community on social media and on some of the, the chat rooms and stuff like that to where there's a lot of heated debate on, on what's appropriate. So I, I would be very interested in hearing from a larger audience what how people went about managing leaf off this time of year when the leaves start to really start to cover up the trail systems and what they consider to be the appropriate way to manage that. Do you leave them there and just ride them in? Do you blow them off and risk blowing off some of your soil composition as well? I mean, there's there's just a there's I guess there's a right and a wrong way for each for each region. But I'd be interested to hear how people are managing the the lead specifically. Yeah, this is this is such an interesting one, and and this is me riding in uh, in a in a temperate rainforest, uh, you know, living in a temperate <laughs> rainforest. I we don't have leaves. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, I, I was seeing this conversation with, with a number of people that past guests on the, the show, um, and, and Facebook pages that I follow on, on, uh, on, on online. And I, I've actually, it was, it was, this conversation was happening. It, it felt like in most of, uh, the United States and, and Eastern parts of, of Canada all at the same time. It was like, it just kind of, for whatever reason, the, the pages that I follow and the people that I follow, everybody was kind of getting in on this conversation. And, and I kind of had to ask myself, like, I, I've never really thought about that. I don't have, there's maybe one or two trails that I can think of that might have like five or six deciduous, uh, trees on them. And, uh, and they don't contribute any really issue on those trails. There's just not that much broadleaf foliage, uh, where I live in, and, uh, as well, Christine, I don't, I don't know, Jay, do you have that, that, uh, I know you're, you're a little of a drier area, so you might not have that issue either. No. And, and uh, because of the forest fires here in Kelowna, I mean, we don't even have that much coniferous tree cover, really. I, I mean, thinking back to the Kootenays in some aspects in the lower shrubland, like Ponderosa pine forest areas, you get, you get needle accumulation, which is on hard surface trails, which is slipperier and all get out. 
Yeah. And, but they're hard surface trails. So it tends to be like, there'll be like a month where you get this really, really heavy needle accumulation and, and all the trails are sketchy and it tends to be, it, it tends to go away very quickly. It, it doesn't, it doesn't accumulate and become an issue over time necessarily. It's just during that period of the snow is almost here and everything's covered in needles. <laughs> That's my only experience in BC with it. <laughs> yeah, this this variability I find really interesting, and and one of the the conversations that I had with with someone was uh, uphill and and downhill traffic, and I have in my mind that uphill traffic you yield to uphill traffic, and if you're traveling downhill. Um, that, that you're the one to kind of stop and, and get to the side, but there's other places that it's the opposite. And, uh, and I think it speaks to that, that challenge as when you are a tourist, you, you don't really know <laughs> what the policy is in a place. It, it can be really tough. I think if we can go back to your original question quickly for me, like an, an episode or a, a discussion that I think could keep going and and it's really important in our industry right now it speaks back to christine's favorite episode with aubreen and i think that whole conversation that sort of came out of that um incident here in Kelowna, um and then it kind of spurred those couple more episodes and then there was eric from from dirt rags presidential rant is kind of that that discussion around how do we make mountain biking more appropriate like or more more approachable by other by people who aren't mountain bikers or by demographics that aren't represented in mountain biking, you know, it'd be really interesting to see that discussion never unfolded into what organizations around the country or around the world are doing to make mountain biking more approachable to, to make it appeal to a broader demographic, or if we should even, if that's something that as clubs, we should be doing to get more membership or at least to be ambassadors for our sport as an activity, I mean, a lot of clubs don't engage in in promoting mountain biking as an activity that people should do. We engage in promoting, you know, trail advocacy and trail maintenance to mountain bikers. We don't actually promote ourselves to a broader demographic. I think that that's something I'd be really interested in seeing is, is there clubs out there or is there organizations out there in the mountain bike realm that have been undertaking this and doing it successfully at, at promoting mountain biking to a, a broader base of people or encouraging more people to come into our sport, making it an inclusive sport. Mm -hmm. Jay, I think you hit an interesting point too, and not even considering what other mountain bike clubs are doing, but also what other volunteer organizations that call upon volunteers how are they are encouraging and, and being approachable to so many other different um, groups as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think there could be um, some really interesting things to learn because yeah, I don't feel like I, I know the answers, but I would, I would love to, um, you know, reach out to other, um, other volunteer organizations and, and see how they do it, such as like Chasing Sunrise or um, the BC Cancer Society. So some of these groups that really rely on other um, volunteers as well, because I think you hit the nail on the head there is like, we are bringing out volunteers to work on the trails. We're not necessarily advocating for mountain biking and yeah. people going and riding their bikes more. Um, I mean, we're creating the opportunity for that experience. And I, I think it also starts to lead into this discussion of where is the media held responsible <laughs> as well? <laughs> we all knew we were going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I, oh, before you go, before you go that, just to build, to build on what the, those comments you just said, and it's not just about how do you engage other, you know, what are other volunteer organizations doing, but what are you as an organization doing to engage the other user groups to actually come out and volunteer with your organization? And so I, I think that's probably one that's plagued a lot of nonprofits and a lot of mountain bike advocacy groups. We all know that mountain bikers tend to be the most group type activity where the most uniformed maybe or, or you know formed together as, as a club and so what we find on those volunteer opportunities is a bunch of mountain bikers out there building and maintaining the trails and well a lot of times what is a true multi-use trail um, a lot of the trails we as an organization build are built on public parks for the community so it's hike it's trail run dog walk we want to build trails for everybody how do you engage those other user groups to then come out and volunteer with your organization? Because you are benefiting them as a user group. You, your efforts that you're doing with a mountain bike club are actually having such a larger impact. And one, we try to do a better job of telling that story through our own marketing and that hike, bike, trail run, dog walk. We really speak to that multi-use, the impact we have as an organization quite a lot. But then what we don't see is we don't see the return on that where we don't have a lot of hikers coming out to volunteer with our organization or we don't have a lot of trail runners coming out to volunteer with our organization so i'd be interested to know what just to kind of build on this this conversation we're having maybe some success stories that other organizations are having across um you know the across the america as far as how that pertains to engaging those other user groups to want to come out and help your organization and give you their their volunteer time as well and i know there's some success stories out there we just haven't um, we haven't um, really activated or been able to to see a return on any kind of investment we've put in. The Central Arkansas Trail Alliance, which is a, a chapter out of Little Rock, Arkansas, very recently they've done very well with engaging a running club. And so now they're having this, this running club come out and the, the runners are starting to show up to their volunteer opportunities. But they rebranded their entire organization. Central Arkansas Trail Alliance used to be branded more specifically toward mountain biking, but they took that branding away to appeal to a larger audience as a whole as it pertained to building and maintaining trails in Central Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I think um, just to kind of touch on that a bit, Brandon, like we've just quickly, we've had a, a bit of a success with the NSMBA in that we have a couple of movers and shakers, I would say, in the trail running and trail hiking um, groups and and they are also mountain bikers um, and they've been really great allies in encouraging other people to come out and support and getting their friends to come out so you know finding a couple of key influencers could be really supportive of that the other thing that we've also noticed is that a lot of work on on uh, multi-use trails we get really great feedback from the hikers and trail runners um, especially when we share that we're the ones who've done the work but we've also noticed that a few of the local trail running races have started to encourage that as part of participation they have to put a certain number of hours into maintaining and volunteering their time back onto the trails before they can even participate in the race. So having some sort of stipulation like that has really helped. And we've seen a lot of um, hikers and runners reach out to us and say like, when's your next trail day? I want to come out because I, you know, I have to now. <laughs> um, and so that's been a really good partnership. And we've also supported um, 
the NSTRA, so the North Shore Trail Runners Alliance, um, in forming their own society. So, because we had been encouraged by the mayor of the District of North Vancouver to, you know, kind of take mountain biking out of our organization's name and, you know, focus as more of just a trail um trail association but mountain biking is our core it's our essence it's where we came from um so i do, and, and it's what we're all very passionate about and so we're, we're not going to lose that but what we've decided to do is really encourage the other user groups to um, establish their own uh, society and we support them in you know the paperwork and creating a board and um, answering any questions that they have social media getting set up how do you communicate and then we can work with them and it, what it allows is for more even more funding to come into the trails so you know a, a local grant if four different trail associations um, applied for that local grant, we have a better opportunity to potentially get more money out of that that can all go back to the network. So these are some of the things that um, that we've really played around with to lean on that success of bringing in and encouraging all um, different user groups to to get back to the network. Just to, to, to kind of add and, and touch on that as well, um, I know that like the Fraser Valley Mountain Bike Association has had um, luck in Vetter uh, down in Chilliwack in the Lower Mainland with getting a, a number of trail runners and, and alternative trail users out in their mountain bike trail network. And it was, they didn't do it through promotion or through kind of like advo advocating it. It was, it was more along the lines of they, they put in a new trail that went to the bottom of the network that was a climbing trail and it made the trail network accessible to other non-motorized users. And it's actually a, a motorized kind of recreation area as well as, as non-motorized. And by making the trail network accessible to non-motorized recreation right to the bottom, to the main access road, they started to get a ton of, of trail runners and hikers and dog walkers out. They got this green trail in. And then when they started doing trail days, these people just started showing up purely because the club had done something that benefited them without asking for anything from them in the first place. So it was kind of this, they, they built this really nice, great climb, which gave access to the network to another user group. that um, was also for the mountain bikers, but it brought out those users to trail days. And then also they've had luck with their trail builders are engaging these people. When they see them out there, the great thing about a hiker and a, and a dog walker and a trail runner they're usually going slower than mountain bikers are and they're already on their feet. It's very easy for them to just stop when you're, you know, we're mountain biking we're going, if we're climbing, we're pedaling hard. If we're descending, we're going fast. We usually don't want to stop and stopping and talking involves getting off the bike, getting back on the bike. It's kind of like, it's a stop start thing with hiking or walking or, or dog walking or running or whatever. They're already stopped as soon as they're not moving it, and they're, they're able to engage with you. So having, trail builders or, or people on the trail days that are willing to converse with these other user groups in a progressive way that encourages them to, you know, come and participate in these activities that maintain the trails that they're then using. Yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. How do we get that conversation going? Right. And, and sometimes that opportunity is provided to us. We just need to to take it and, and, and use it. Right. And I, I probably talk to more, dog walkers on the trails that, that I maintain, uh, than I would mountain bikers, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, if, if, uh, if, 
only their, you know, their dogs might come up first and, and maybe that's the okay. way to kind of <laughs> break the ice a little bit is say hello to the dog and very naturally the, the owner comes and follows and, and, uh, and now you can kind of launch into a conversation, which is always nice. Does that, if they're on their feet, do you get more time? Is there more elevator time? Yeah, I guess so. You got yeah. a couple, you got a couple more floors. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's kind of what, I think that's the, the drill down point of what I was saying is you've kind of, you've got them kind of captivated pretty easily at that point. Okay. Let's, uh, let's circle back to that, uh, that topic that kind of poked its head out a little bit there. And, and that is, uh, mountain bike media. Uh, I know it's something that, um, that Jay and I have discussed quite a bit. I've, I've talked about it on the, the show. I did a full episode on it. Um, and I'm still uncertain to, uh, how we go about this. And I think very recently more is coming out about what's happening between the sustainable trails coalition and IMBA in the United States. And, and of course, media is grasping onto this and, and maybe even embellishing some of this stuff and using, maybe I would even define inflammatory language to kind of describe this stuff, but media has a job to do. And that is to to either sell uh, whatever they're selling, so whether it's a magazine or or uh, whatever else it is, and then in in an online sense, their job is to get eyeballs. That's what they need because they're selling advertising. They want to get eyeballs, and so we can't fault them for doing things that are going to get eyeballs to their websites, but how do we how do we get this point across to mountain bike media that there are certain things that are not appropriate and do not help us uh, as trail stewards all right so i don't know if i want to start this one off go for it jay okay <laughs> so I, I got a i got a wordy quote to add to this and it kind of speaks i think to the the general problem that in the discussion of media i don't think um, if you look at it from a broader sociological context, and we've been discussing it in the mountain bike community and how mountain bike media is kind of working against advocacy, and I think that the the boiled down problem. So this is a quote from from Noam Chomsky. So if anybody knows, he's a fairly leftist commentator. Um, uh, media. So his quote is: uh, "It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society." So he's obviously talking about mass media and and the news system. But if you take that and apply that to mountain bike media, what he's saying is that media's role is to put across the values and beliefs of the general populace that it serves. So if mountain bike media serves mountain bikers, it's only reiterating the things that the mountain bike community kind of enjoys or holds dear to itself right now. So I think the issue that we're having is, is that we're seeing this, this antagonistic nature between advocacy and between mountain bike media in some way or in a fair number of ways and I think the problem becomes is the mountain bike media is just mirroring what the mountain bike community wants to see. And the, the role or the, the, the thing that the advocacy groups need to do or, or what we can do is rather than try and fight media is we can, we can, we can educate the industry and whether that industry is the, the purchasers of advertising or just the general population. If the general population understands why blowing up berms is bad they're not going to want to see pictures of blowing up berms every day anymore. And I think that, you know, unfortunately that's a weighty thing for us as advocates 
to take on, but it kind of, and it's something we've been doing over time, but maybe not necessarily as much or as heavily as we need to, that, that to reinforce these ideas of, of appropriate riding, appropriate trail use, and ensuring that the population, when they see those pictures, rather than going, sweet, they see those pictures and go, man, that dude shouldn't be doing that. You know, I think that it's kind of, it's, it's, it's fun to be antagonistic with media and tell them they should be the watchdogs of what they're producing, but they're only producing things that mirror what the consumers of their media want. Does that make sense? <laughs> mm -hmm. I think I'm just not okay with that. I think it disperses the responsibility that they do have. And if I think about who the they and the society and what it is that they're trying to sell to and who to, it, you're just kind of fulfilling, it's like feeding something that's already been fed, you know, and just regurgitating the same stuff over and over again. And that's just like white dude bro mountain biking to white dude bro mountain biking over and over and over again. These are old ideas that have been around for decades about what mountain biking is. And there needs to be a shift in that. And that shift sometimes needs to come from the top down, like we are as advocates, advocating and educating and, but we're also volunteers. And there's a lot of other things that are going on behind the scenes, but media, like their opportunity is to educate and they have a lot more time and a lot more money and a lot more influence to be able to, you know, at least have a sliver <laughs> of something different um, in, in, what they are sharing with um, this this audience. And like, it's in their best interests. If you want to get to the next level of how many more people you can sell to, you need to have more female-driven content. You need to have more different colored faces uh, in your advertising. And I, I like, I'm just... So anytime I'm watching a mountain bike video now, it's very interesting how I look at it now versus how I used to see it before. And I'm just, I'm not interested anymore. I, I, I turn them off, um, you know, and I've, I've been really disappointed. And um, I, I hope that other people continue to share their disappointment because it, it needs to be a collective effort. We can't just disperse the responsibility and, and, and put it on ourselves. We, we need help, um, just like we need help in building and maintaining trails so that the marketers can you know continue to sell their bikes that they can then use on the trails. We need help in educating and encouraging different people to be riding bikes that they can then sell to them um, to then use on the trails. Does that make sense? I, I, and I totally agree. I think the problem that maybe Brent can shed some light on why my opinion is a little bit jaded at this point, <laughs> um, in that, you know, I think it, from mine and his experiences in something we were recently dealing with is that they're almost indifferent. The, the industry and media is indifferent to the ideas that we're talking about. It, mm -hmm. it, it seems other than, you know, a few like Eric from dirt rag was, you know, he seems to be on the right track and it's unfortunate, but, but, you know, I, I don't know how we solve that problem. Then the problem then becomes, how do we, how do we ensure that they're not indifferent that when we approach them and go, you guys shouldn't be promoting this, that they don't go, well, it's just what the people want. You know, it's kind of, that's I, perhaps I'm jaded. <laughs> 
and I just I want to pose a question because we're talking about you know long-term sustainability of our organizations as far as advocacy goes and and generating volunteers into the trails at what point do we take a step back and maybe consider that mountain biking as a whole is changing and as we want to attract that next generation of trail users specifically mountain bikers these kids are looking for a different experience they've been raised on Red Bull Rampage and X Games, and it's a different generation. They're they're adrenaline junkies. They're looking for that cycling optimized, that descent driven experience that that maybe some of the the more seasoned mountain bikers are going to be more cross country. And to speak specifically specifically to that, we've seen cross country racing grow flat. We've seen the segment of enduro, which I know is a, at least here in the states is a is a fast growing race segment. It's exploding. That that downhill adrenaline junkie descent driven. I mean, that's what the the sport tends to be trending towards, which also aligns, unfortunately, sometimes with some of the marketing we're seeing as it pertains to to the way people are riding the trails. Mm. Yeah. I guess I would just want to encourage all of you and anybody who's listening to like close your eyes for a second and consider when we're talking about that next generation of mountain bikers or who mountain bikers are when we're talking about that user group, like who do you picture? Who do you picture in your mind? Are they a woman? Do they have dark colored skin? Are they young? Are they old? And I can guarantee you that they are a 20-something white dude who is very affluent. He can afford that $8,000 carbon bike. I would like to see more girls out there riding and yahooing and enjoying their time. I would love to see all the different faces that I see when I go downtown and have them come out and have these experiences out on the trails and that's what I'm most passionate about and and just you know saying well like that's who mountain bikers are and like that's what this next generation is it's like I don't even I don't I'm I'm not okay with that (laughs) well and I'm I'm not saying that I'm, I'm okay I'm just I'm proposing the question based on you know, if we put on an event, right, and we promote that event as a, you know, a backwoods cross-country experience, come out, have a great time, we'll sell, we're going to help you, it's, it's going to be supported, you can ride this 40-mile epic adventure, and it's a lot of contour riding in the woods. And then at the same time, if we promote an entirely different aspect of what riding is, maybe it's more descent-driven, maybe it's shuttle mm-hmm. service, maybe we're going to do some shuttling, what we see is a completely younger demo. It completely changes who shows up to those events. And what we're seeing is that next generation of cyclists, and I'm not talking just men specifically, men, women, but the age demo, speaking specifically to the age demo, it's mm-hmm. driven It's driven by what event you're putting on. And the more descent-driven enduro type event is what's drawing that next generation of mountain biker, at least here in the States. That's exactly it, Brennan. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the one of the things that that excites me the most going forward, and where I kind of see the most successful change, and and you know when we get down to 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 what's important in mountain biking, I think more numbers. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. Uh, you know, over the over the last few episodes, this 
conversation about wilderness and and what happened in the boulder white clouds there's 187 letters only 187 letters written kind of supporting bikes in the boulder white cloud yet the internet is there's far more than 187 people who are angry and upset that the boulder white clouds were lost uh for for cyclists and and so what kind of gets me excited and, and the, the people that I really want to see engage with this sport is anybody and everybody, but I want them to come through advocacy and trail yeah. building to get to this sport. I think that's the most important part. I think we all 100% agree with that, but I guess what I'm proposing is how do you engage the next generation of ridership that's looking for a different experience than what your organization has been getting drawing from for the first, the last 20 years of mountain biking. Right. And so as the sport changes, how, as, a, as an advocacy organization doing outreach, how do you then reach this next generation of cyclists? And again, I think it's just, you know, looking at the way marketing and we're sitting here talking about marketing, they're targeting the ridership that they're getting. And it's that younger, like you're talking about Christine, it's those, you know, those early 20-something white dudes out in the woods on $8,000 carbon bikes. But those are also the future advocates of trail. Like it or not, those are the ones that, you know, we are going to need to lean on to be future trail stewards. So I think it's just, it's an interesting question to ask, you know, ask ourselves, how do we then engage this next demographic of mountain bikers that, that we know is changing? Brandon, do you have a, a NICA program in, uh, in your area? We do. No, and it's our, we just went through its second year. We're seeing, you know, year over year growth, year one, year two, almost double. We anticipate it to grow up to like 400 student athletes in its third year. And we absolutely see that as a future way to engage, you know, future trail stewards. And we're working with our, our local, the Arkansas NICA League, to then in the off season engage those student athletes and get them out on the trails and get them ball. And so at an early age, we want to establish that establish that that stewardship with these student athletes so as they grow up they're taking ownership in the trail system that they ride but at the same time nika is not going to appeal to to all students and all athletes that are that are coming up and a lot of these kids that now that we're you know we're purpose building trails specifically for mountain biking right we're not i mean there's 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 area trails in our region which make for like the raddest experience you can have on a mountain bike but these are purpose-built trails for that experience and because of that because they're downhill descent driven that's a different demographic than what nika does nika is a it's a three mile beginner loop to you know three to five mile beginner loop really built to engage and get people interested in the sport it's not the rowdy downhill stuff that that we're you know at the same time that's a total different a total different demographic that we as organizations of advocacy need to find a way to engage to get these kids out on the trail mm. It's interesting because uh, it's interesting to hear Brandon's perspective because, and maybe you're going to agree with this, Christine and Brent, is that from my perspective, this new enduro style of riding or the the climb, climb and then rowdy descent riding has actually made in BC, it's actually made the riding more approachable because it's not all shuttling downhill bikes anymore. Like, like it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I started riding like nobody rode up nobody i knew rode their mountain bike up everybody shuttled everything that was shuttleable and the trails that were pedalable never got you know never saw traffic it's kind of interesting that from the perspective down in arkansas is that 
you know, this, this, this riding is, is becoming more gravity fed, you know, more crazy. Whereas here I've seen the the trend actually kind of changed where there's more people pedaling than used to pedal. Mm. Um, yeah, that's kind of interesting perspective. This, yeah, this is interesting. So, and this, you know, the North shore and, and all of British Columbia is, has always kind of been gravity fueled mountain biking. And so with the introduction of, of enduro, it's almost taken one step closer to cross country, but in places that were focused with cross country, we've actually taken a step closer to downhill. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's all about progression and offering different types of riding experiences because one type of riding experiences is only going to make certain types of people happy. So, um, you know, seeing progression on the shore or seeing progression in Arkansas, I think will, will start to see lots of different types of riders, whatever that progression looks like. But having a different offering, is, I think, is really important and having a cohesive trail network. What I want to do, I want to finish with uh, one one last question for each of you. And, and so uh, what would you say your organization does really well that uh, some other organizations might struggle with? What's that one thing that, that you're confident that you do well and you know that there's other organizations that are, that are a little bit more challenged with this thing? Brandon, you want to start? As an organization, right, we, we, I think we pride ourselves in being a leading advocacy group for really a quarter of the state of Arkansas, but we don't ever want to lose sight that it's truly that, you know, the volunteers that help us meet our mission. That's the reason we meet our mission is because people in our community come out and choose to spend their volunteer time, choose to take time out of their lives and volunteer back to our organization and back in to the trail systems that we ride and so we've I feel we do a really good job with volunteer recognition and I know a lot of people don't show up to trails for recognition but those little attaboys those little things can weigh just to let those people know that are coming out just thank you and so we have a couple initiatives we do one is it's built around just a little sticker that if you come out and volunteer with our organization I know I've talked about this before but we're going to give you a little sticker and then we want you can put it on your top tube, you can put it on your helmet. It's a little shovel. It's pretty cool looking. You end up looking like a kind of like a like a college athlete as you start to accumulate them and show up to these volunteer opportunities that we host. But then the, the other part of that is then we educate the public as to what those stickers mean. And if you're out riding your bike and you roll up next to somebody and he's got eight or ten of these stickers down his top tube or she, then you know, really take the time to say thank you. Thank that individual for their volunteerism because those are the individuals that are out in your community that are making a difference. They're taking their time out of their days to go out and give back to the trails. And then we, we step it up from there and we develop some, you know, 20 hour recognitions. We, we develop their custom bar ends that are branded with our logo. And we, it's really a unique custom piece that you can get nowhere else that at 20 hours annually, we want to recognize that. And so we're going to slap those in the bar end of your bike and then again, educate the public to what that means. And then from there, it just keeps going up. But then to take it to the next level, at least regionally, we've partnered with Monster Energy who has donated a you know $7,000 carbon fiber Santa Cruz and then custom painted it by the same dude that paints their race helmets. And at the end of the year, one volunteer is going to walk away with a truly custom 
mountain bike that no one else in the country is going to have. And that just, all those things, we work with those programs and we find sponsors and we find partners and it's all built around volunteer recognition. We want to make sure that the volunteers in our community, the people that are begin spending their time and going out on the trails and taking care of them are recognized not only by us as an organization, but by the other people that are actually out there using the trails. I think you've done a really great job of that too, Brennan. I remember you talking about that trail sticker piece in a an episode earlier and and we like we borrowed your idea <laughs> and made some of our own stickers um, that we now give out um, at all our trail days and they have different colors so you can collect each of the colors. So thank you for that and, and thank you for sharing those ideas of how to recognize volunteers because I think these are some of those actionable pieces that people who are listening to these podcasts can really take back to their trail associations or get them thinking about ideas that they can do that really make this podcast successful and, and worth, worth listening to. Yeah, that's that's a, a story that I always like to share is how the NSMBA has has you know borrowed or or uh, or got to take an, an idea that uh, that Brandon that that you shared on the podcast. Well, that's that's the whole idea. That's what this format is. It's an opportunity for us as leaders of advocacy in our in our own you know our own respective regions to to share this. And Brandon, I just I just want to personally thank you for creating a platform for people like myself, like Jay, like Christine to really just to share some of these better practices to put it out there and you know anything we put out here if someone adopts man that's that's the whole uh, we see that as the whole purpose for this podcast uh christine what would you say uh, the north shore mountain bike association does really well oh um i'm not one to toot my own horn which is why i was like think of something other than social media that we do really well um but i we, we have to look at social media as really a platform for how we have chosen to educate, communicate, and this has led to the success of a, of a bunch of other goals that we had for 2017 and that we have moving forward. So, you know, having and growing a really strong, authentic followership online has helped us to have some really interesting conversations um, with people who follow us which leads into a great opportunity to educate and um, to communicate things that are happening in the community and also just to entertain. I mean, at the end of the day, people are going on social media to stay up to date on the newest information, but also just to be entertained. So social media has um, supported us in in contributing over 12,000 volunteer hours back to the trails this year. Um, it's helped us grow our membership by over 600 members between 2016 and 2017. So this year we finished at 1,825 members. Thank you, everybody. Um, it's really helped our advocacy efforts. So we had um, late last year, we had some trail signs go up and the potential to lose some trails on Seymour and um, being able to communicate this out to our membership and our followers and our community really helped to um, move some of these pieces forward. And it's also really helped with our fundraising goals. So we had a bike raffle this year that contributed over $30,000 back to the trails. Um, and it, it's helped to communicate all of the, the goals um, and, and the accomplishments that we had this year so that people can continue to donate and, and support the NSMBA and um, yeah, I, I I have to say that it's it's been social media that's really supported us in um, 
being where people want to be communicated to um, and being really relevant in that atmosphere has been, uh, or that environment, sorry, has been um, very beneficial for us. And we've been able to share some of those best practices this year with going to the Mountain Bike Symposium. Um, and we're considering doing a kind of a follow-up to the Mountain Bike Symposium presentation um, in the new year using maybe a webinar or potentially Skype or something like this where we can have other trail associations come together and, and share some of those best practices as well. So yeah, social media, get on it. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think that more than anything, and I'm going to go down Christine's road of, of tooting my own horn. Um, is <laughs> toot, the, toot. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's, it's well-founded. You're, you're the social media that NSMBA has been producing is just been awesome. It's been so on point and effective, you know, even outside of your region. I think, I think anybody that follows the SABA's social media program that from other areas, I'm sure, you know, has a lot of takeaways from it because it's not necessarily always, you know, shore specific in regards to like, you know, just supporting trails and appropriate riding and that type of thing. The messaging is just so well done that it's not necessarily area specific. Um, I think that something that we've focused on, and this was my, and something that I wanted to focus on when I started with the organization was working with local government, like ensuring that we had a seat at the table. And part of that, the reason I've been able to do that is because the organization has supported it. We are, we are visible. The local government understands there's a group of us. We do these large social events we we've had people that have been able to get our events in the news media we've done uh, uh trail network cleanup days where we you know took two tons of garbage out of the bush you know we've had people that have gotten that onto the local online news and the local newspapers and so the the local government see us as somebody they have to be talking to because we're so visible and because our members, you know, talk to their neighbors and, and they, there is this, this word of mouth about the club. Everybody knows we exist, even though we struggle with in getting, we struggle with volunteers. We struggle with getting people to participate in events. Sometimes we struggle with creating understanding of what the club's about and what our goals are and what we're trying to do. We struggle communicating the bureaucracy of trail legalization to our membership, but because our membership, because we are well known in the community, we have a face, um, we've been able to work really well with local government, or I've been able to go out as the president of the organization and sit at tables with the regional district, you know, council or with the city council. And when we want letters of support, or we want to do some sort of an event, it's not oh, should you really be doing that? It's like, how can we do more? Can we support you more? Can we give you, is there anything else we can do to help you get this done? Because they see us as an important ally in managing recreation assets that they know are important. You know, regional districts and, and cities know recreation assets are important. They unfortunately, you know, don't necessarily have the budgets to support local you know, advocacy groups doing trail work, but oftentimes they're able to point you in the right direction or get you something you might need, uh, you know, down the road. Or in an example of the city of Kelowna, we worked closely with them for uh, about five years on recreating the management plan for one of the city parks. And because of that, we developed this relationship where we've been 
putting all these inputs of ideas and things that should happen. And then five years down the road, they were able to find money and they've started implementing our ideas. They've been started implementing the projects that we had in mind. And originally we'd saw them as things that the club was going to have to do. And we were just looking for permission. And we ended up with the city paying contractors to do that work. So we don't actually have to do it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's super important for clubs to focus on that. And in speaking with clubs throughout BC at the tourism symposium or on my own, and I also conducted a, a survey for IMBA Canada on uh, asking clubs what they're good at, what they're bad at, you know, and that was an area where clubs kind of thought they were okay at it, but really wanted more help from IMBA Canada nationally. And I think that it's some place where, you know, where clubs can focus that, that not necessarily get things done right away, but it gets things done eventually, or at least it enables you to get things done down the road by having that really close relationship with local government. Awesome. Well, Brandon, Christine, Jay, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to sit down and, and have this discussion. Uh, I appreciate it. I hope all of you have a, a, a great holiday and, uh, and I'm looking forward to kind of keeping these conversations going into, uh, into 2018. Thank you, Brent. It's been awesome. It's great what you're doing. The front lines has just been a, a super good tool for everybody, I think. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Brent. This is like, I take every episode that you post and I, I send it to our board of directors. It should be like recommended listening for um, any trail association and their board of directors. So thank you for all that you're doing. It's amazing. And I always leave with something tangible or actionable at the end of every episode. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely, Brent. Thank you for uh, creating a platform for truly a voice of advocacy and you know, a place where people like myself, Jay and Christine can really, you know, share some of the better practices and more some of the success stories as well as a, as an opportunity for people to ask questions. And so we appreciate everything you're doing for mountain biking as a whole. Awesome. Thanks everyone. I want to take this time to thank all of my guests from the previous 30 episodes. I also want to thank everyone who has supported the show with donations, emails, and social media shares. This community continues to grow. Thank you, everyone. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at FrontlinesMTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, as well as links to the Frontlines Book Club. The latest book is a recommendation of my own and was the one that I mentioned at the very beginning of today's show, This I Know by Terry O'Reilly. Purchase the book through Amazon via frontlinesmtb.com and Amazon will help to support the show. And thank you to everyone that included some Christmas shopping on their book club purchases. Amazon sends some of that purchase amount to the show as well. You can still find the previously recommended book on there, The End of Membership as We Know It, and I highly recommend it for a couple of relevant reasons. Our first episode of 2018 will be on membership. My guest will be Tom Stussy of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association. And the second reason revolves around IMBA. Since wrapping up our discussion on bikes in wilderness, a lot has happened. SDC's bill has passed in the House Natural Resources Committee. Following IMBA's official testimony, which was released the night before the subcommittee met, there's been a lot of outcry from the public. 
Now, what should be mentioned is that this testimony was not subpoenaed. It was volunteered by IMBA, but it was not read during the subcommittee meeting. It also should be made clear that IMBA stated they do not support Bill HR 1349. That doesn't mean that they oppose it. And I know that that might sound like the same thing, but in politics, that language does matter. Now, I'm working on an update episode for this discussion, but I, I do want to focus on some other topics and make sure that we look at more than just bikes in U.S. wilderness. Last episode, Bruce Alt mentioned that numbers matter. And so not only related to wilderness, but to all mountain bike access across the globe, more is better. And the point made during today's interview that rings more true than ever is inclusivity. Not only does the amount of mountain bikers need to increase, but they need to better represent the greater world that surrounds it. And so moving into the new year, we will continue to look at how, as advocates, we can do that. As always, music is provided by Lee Rosevear and production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and have a great holiday season. Be with your friends and family because that's what really matters. Happy trails, everyone.